0: All right, Wrestling with Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton. It is Monday, so we are standing in the confessional corner. And today and next week, we have Article 21 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, the last of the basic, this is what we believe, teach, and confess overall. But for only having 44 paragraphs taking up maybe a handful of pages, I think this is the most highlighted section I have in my copy of Concordia of the Lutheran Confessions because there is so much stuff here, so much stuff they're having to battle against that it wasn't all that much of an article in regards to the Augsburg Confession. But when the Confutation comes out and says, no, 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 you must invoke the saints, that got Melanchthon going in. It's still a relatively short article, still breaking it up over two weeks. But there's so much in here. These might run a little bit longer than my normal ones for the confessional corner. But we start off in Article 21, Paragraphs 1 through 3. They, the Roman theologians, absolutely condemn Article 21 because we do not require the invocation of saints. On no other topic do they speak more smoothly or wordily, yet they are not able to prove anything other than that the saints should be honored or that living saints pray for others as though invoking dead saints were necessary for that reason. They cite Cyprian because he asked Cornelius while he was still alive to pray for his brothers after his death. By this example, they prove the invocation of the dead. They quote also Jerome against Vigilantius. On this field, they say, 1100 years ago, Jerome overcame Vigilantius. So the adversaries triumph as though the war had already ended. Nor do those asses see that in Jerome against Vigilantius, there is not a syllable about invocation. He speaks about honor for the saints, not about invocation. Before Gregory, none of the other ancient writers mentioned invocation. Certainly, this kind of invocation and the opinions that the adversaries now teach about the application of merits are not confirmed by the ancient writers. Okay, so here we have three references to the early church fathers. Cyprian in the 3rd century asking Cornelius, who would take over as bishop after him, to pray for the brothers after he dies. Not pray to him, but pray for the brothers who are in the ministry. Jerome is against Vigilantius. Vigilantius said that once you're dead, no more honor for you. There is no need to go through. And respect the examples of old, which goes completely against Scripture, which is why I mean, if we were not to honor the saints who have gone before, why do we have the stories of Abraham, of David, of the apostles, of Timothy, of all of these people, and then throughout the history, the people who kept the faith, the people who were there and have received spiritually the crown of life, but then await the day where it will be fully realized as body and soul are reunited on Judgment Day. Why do we have these if it is not thereby to imitate the faith that they had or to learn from their example of what sins not to fall into? And then Melanchthon points out that it's not until Gregory the Great in the 6th century is there even a syllable written about invoking the dead saints. And that becomes the thrust of what this article comes across. is it is a possibly even a misstatement, if not a misunderstanding completely, of Gregory's thought, or maybe even it was true of Gregory. And he misunderstood the honor due to the saints, because we do honor the saints. We do that every All Saints day as we remember those of our congregation and those attached to the congregation who have died in the last year. We're not praying to them. We're remembering them and their faith in their Lord. And they're looking forward to the resurrection of the body and life everlasting in heaven. That's the true honor of the saints. And Melanchthon will continue to flesh that out throughout this article. We continue on in paragraphs four through seven. Our confession approves honoring the saints in three ways. The first is thanksgiving. We should thank God because he has shown examples of mercy, because he wishes to save people, and because he has given teachers and other gifts to the church. These gifts, since they are the greatest, should be amplified. The saints themselves who have faithfully used these gifts should be praised just as Christ praises faithful businessmen. Matthew 25 verses 21 and 23. The second service is the strengthening of our faith. When we see Peter's denial forgiven, we also are encouraged to believe all the more that grace truly superabounds over sin, Romans 5.20. The third honor is the imitation, first of faith, then of the other virtues. Everyone should imitate the saints according to his calling. The adversaries do not require these true honors. They argue only about invocation, which, even if it were not dangerous, still is not necessary. So three ways the saints should be honored. First, thanksgiving. The thanksgiving for God calling them to faith and that they responded by faithfully using the gifts that he gave them. The second is the strengthening of our faith. He points out Peter's denial being forgiven. We look at David being forgiven after his sin with Bathsheba. We look at the fall into sin with Adam and Eve, but still the promise of the one who would crush the serpent's head. And on and on, we see especially forgiveness given to sinners. That should strengthen our faith. And the third is imitation, first of the faith and then of other virtues and he will go on to talk about people like the emperor should imitate David in the way that he reigns. And everybody should imitate them according to the various vocations that they have that are the same. You want an example of being a good father, you go look at Abraham, who is willing even to sacrifice his son Isaac at the command of God. You want an example of a good mother. You look at the Virgin Mary, or you look at Lois and Eunice, Timothy's mother and grandmother, these women who have great faith and bring their children up knowing the Scriptures. Those are the ways the saints should be honored, not by praying to them, And even if that weren't detrimental in the first place, even if it weren't dangerous, it's still not necessary because Jesus tells us to pray in his name and praying through him as our advocate. Not me or if the lion is busy, you can talk to one of these guys. No, the lion is never busy for Jesus. In paragraphs 8 and 9, Melanchthon writes, Besides, we also grant that the angels pray for us. For there is a passage in Zechariah 1.12, for an angel prays, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? We admit that just as the saints, when alive, pray for the church universal in general, so in heaven they pray for the church in general. However, no passage about the praying of the dead exists in the scriptures, except the dream taken from the second book of Maccabees, chapter 15, verse 14. Yes, the angels pray. The saints pray, but they are all general prayers. They are not prayers for you. They are not prayers for me. They are prayers for the church as a whole, that there continue to be a church on earth, remaining faithful to God. We continue on, starting in paragraph 10. Furthermore, even if the saints do pray for the church, that does not mean they should be invoked. Our confession affirms only this. Scripture does not teach the invocation of the saints or that we are to ask the saints for aid. Since neither a command nor a promise nor an example can be produced from the scriptures about the invocation of saints, it makes sense that conscience remains uncertain about this invocation. Since prayer should be made from faith, how do we know that God approves this invocation? Without the testimony of scripture, how do we know that the saints know about the prayers of each one? Some plainly ascribe divinity to the saints, namely that they discern the silent thoughts of our minds. They argue about morning and evening knowledge, perhaps because they doubt whether the saints hear us in the morning or in the evening. They invent these things not to honor the saints, but to defend profitable services. The adversaries cannot produce anything against this argument. Since the invocation of saints does not have testimony from God's word, it cannot be affirmed that the saints understand our invocation, or, even if they understand it, that God approves it. Therefore, the adversaries should not force us into an uncertain matter, because a prayer without faith is not prayer. When they cite the church's example, it is clear that this is a new custom in the church. Although the old prayers mention the saints, they do not invoke the saints. This new invocation in the church is unlike the invocation of individuals. Okay. Real simple, real straightforward to the point. Even if the saints do pray for the church, that does not mean they should be invoked. Just because they pray does not mean that we need to pray to them. Because there is neither a command, there is not a promise, there is not an example of this happening in Scripture at all. Nowhere. So we cannot be certain that this could even possibly be acceptable to God. And prayer is supposed to be rooted in faith. However, we talked about this many times before. Rome demands doubt. Rome thrives on doubt. And the more uncertain, the more they push. And that's exactly what they do in the invocation of saints. Nowhere is it even suggested that we might even do that. And then, how do we know? Well, we'll we'll talk about the saints being partially divine now. You know, the beatification of the saints, which, of course, only the pope can do. And they have all sorts of rules for the canonization process. And it's just, again, as Melanchthon says here, and he will say in multiple other places in the Apology, this is strictly for the gain of profitable services so that Rome continues to make money. That's the whole point behind it. And it is a very profitable, lucrative business, from Rome's perspective because you can look at any Roman Catholic supply catalog and you've got all kinds of cards and statues and all sorts of things for all of the saints and all sorts of superstitions around each of the saints like burying a statue of St. Joseph, the stepfather of our Lord upside down in your backyard to sell your house faster. Who came up with that idea? I, I don't understand that. What? it has been come up with, and people do it, because you thrive on the unknown and the uncertain. All right, we continue on, paragraphs 14 and 15. Further, the adversaries not only require invocation and worshiping the saints, but also apply the merits of saints to others. They make the saints not only intercessors, but people who make atonement. This cannot be tolerated. Here, honor that belongs to Christ alone is completely transferred to the saints. The adversaries make them mediators and atonement makers. Although they distinguish between mediators of intercession and mediators of redemption, they plainly make the saints mediators of redemption. Without the testimony of scriptures, they declare that the saints are mediators of intercession. This, be it said ever so reverently, still clouds over Christ's office and transfers to the saints the confidence of mercy belonging to Christ. People imagine that Christ is stricter and the saints more easily appeased. They trust the saints' mercy rather than Christ's mercy. They flee from Christ and seek the saints. So they actually make the saints mediators of redemption. Now we have two different categories that on the book's the Roman Catholic theologians categorize the saints between those who are mediators of intercession and those who are mediators of redemption. And in the strict teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, there are two mediators of redemption, Jesus and the Virgin Mary. Every other saint is strictly a mediator of intercession. They can hear your prayers. They will bring the prayers To Jesus, just have to follow the middleman regarding these different things. But in the actual life of the basic Roman Catholic layperson, there's no distinction there because they are more willing to go to the saints to go to the Virgin Mary, to go to St. Christopher, to go to St. Patrick, and whatever other saints they want to bring up with for whatever patronage that they have because they trust them more. Jesus is too holy to be merciful to us. So we'll go to the middlemen to receive our mercy. And that, that, my brothers and sisters, is very... Very sad statement, but it is also very true because you ask your typical Roman Catholic layperson, and how many times do you pray to Jesus, and how many times do you pray to one of the saints, and it will be a much larger percentage of the time they pray to the saints instead of to Jesus, and that is sad. All right, we move on into paragraphs 16 through 19. Therefore, we will show that the adversaries truly make the saints not just intercessors, but atonement makers, that is, mediators of redemption. Here we will not describe the abuses of the common people. We are still speaking about the opinions of the doctors. Regarding the rest, even the inexperienced can judge. We just went through that. The official teachings versus the folk teachings. In a person who makes atonement, two things are required. First, there should be a word of God from which we certainly know that God wants to pity and to listen to those calling upon him through this atonement maker. There is such a promise about Christ. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. John 16:23. There is no such promise about the saints. Therefore, consciences cannot be completely confident that we are heard by the invocation of saints. This invocation, therefore, does not spring from faith. We also have the command to call upon Christ. Come to me, all who labor, Matthew 11:28. T- In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. Isaiah 11:10. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Psalm 45:12. May all kings fall down before him. Psalm 72:11. May prayer be made for him continually. Psalm 72:15 that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father, John five twenty three. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father, comfort your hearts and establish them. Second Thessalonians two, sixteen and seventeen. What commandment, what example, can the adversaries produce from the Scriptures about the invocation of saints? The second requirement for an atonement maker is that his merits are shown to make satisfaction for other people. They are divinely given to others, so that through them, just as by their own merits, other people may be regarded righteous. For example, when a friend pays a debt for a friend, the debtor is freed by the merit of another, as though it were by his own. So Christ's merits are given to us, so that when we believe in him, he may be regarded righteous by our confidence in Christ's merits, as though we had merits of our own. So the two requirements for an atonement maker is at first, there must be a promise from God that He will pity us through this person. And second, that there must also be proof that His merits or her merits are able to be transferred to other people. And there is only one person that we have proof of either one of those. Only Christ has the promise of being pitied and receiving mercy through him. And only Christ is seen as giving us salvation, giving us his merits, his righteousness, so that we may be considered righteous through him. Nobody else. He is the only mediator of atonement. Period. We close with paragraph 20. From both of these, the promise and the giving of merits arises confidence in mercy. Such confidence in the divine promise and likewise in Christ's merits should be promoted when we pray. For we should truly be confident both that for Christ's sake we are heard and that by his merits we have a reconciled father. This is the thrust of Article 21, just like it was the thrust of Article 12 and Article 4. The promise, the assurance that we have a reconciled Father through Jesus. That is where the faithful stand. That is where we have the securest, firmest foundation. Nowhere else, just in Christ. All right, that's it for this week. I thank you for standing in the confessional corner with me. Next week, we'll wrap up Article 21 and get ready to go into the great sagas of the abuses and the responses that Melanchthon has for each of them in the coming weeks, starting in January. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Newton, wishing you God's richest blessings especially as we come up to the changing of the calendar year, that as 2021 has been wonderful to you, or maybe it's been horrible to you, that it is my prayer sincerely that 2022 be the year you see God's favor and mercy in your life so that you may wrestle with the theologies around you. Amen.